Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of The Fast Fill. Fast Fill is a new podcast series sponsored by Natural Gas Vehicles for America, the national organization dedicated to the development of a growing, profitable, and sustainable marketplace for vehicles powered by natural gas and biomethane, and for promoting the use of more natural gas in transportation. I'm your host, Dan Gage, president of NGV America, and joining me today are Joanna Underwood and Matt Tomic of Energy Vision a leading independent 501c3 organization focused on the technology, policy, and economic elements associated with both the production and use of biomethane or renewable natural gas. Welcome both, and uh, thank you for joining us. I'm really honored to have you here. Thank you. Hey, Dan. Hey. I have to say, um, when I first first joined NGV America, I think it was about three years ago. Yeah, three years ago this fall. It was you, Matt, who reached out to me and and welcomed and offered, you know, whatever support that that you could and uh, and have since then. Uh, I appreciate that very much. And I learned an awful lot. You know, when I got involved in um, in this trade association in the industry, I was aware of natural gas, but not I didn't know what renewable natural gas was and so or its benefits. And so since then, um, you know, I've learned an awful lot. I think a lot of it is due to the work of of your organiza- organization, uh, Matt and Joanna. And and so, I, you know, just curious to sit down with you today and talk a little bit about how that evolved and um, and your advocacy and activism and and um, and and how you grew this uh, organization from a small idea, I guess, into what it is today. So, Ms. Underwood, you know, when I started, I heard your name repeatedly. Everyone said I had to talk to Joanna Underwood and. Uh, you know, so I think you're a true pioneer in this space, but tell us a little bit about um, your background and uh, how you became involved in environmental activism. And I, I don't want to date you, uh, so I'll let you talk about that. Uh, but h- how it evolved into renewable natural gas? Well, actually, I started Energy Vision in 2007. And there we had a clear idea of looking for the clean energy and the clean fuels for a sustainable future. They had to be from a renewable resource, they had to be non-polluting, and they had to be carbon-free. But that's not where I began my environmental career. In fact, I began in 1969, before the EPA was set up, before the National Environmental Policy Act was passed. Um, I had been a journalist at Time Life, And I became interested in how business was affecting um, how business was affecting uh, our environment, and that business was really affecting it more than even government. At that time, there was no EPA, and all of the laws and regulations were on the state level. Um, And we did a major study of the pulp and paper industry and concluded from that, which set my course, that when we looked at 129 paper mills, we saw that everyone was distinct, that everyone um, was differently regulated across the country, but most important, that the one standard way we could find to evaluate their environmental practices was what was called then the state of the art the best available technology. And so that's what we did in this report called Paper Profits. And it turned out that best available control technology was the standard that the first Environmental Protection Agency 
used to evaluate water pollution control and water pollution progress. So we just had this fixed in our mind. What are the best practices that business could adopt? What are the best technologies that would lead us toward a truly sustainable future? I started a group then called Inform, and there we studied many issues, toxic chemicals, safety of workers, but we also studied transportation for the first time. And the first report we published in that field was quite seminal. It was called Dry for Clean Air. It was published mm-hmm. in 1979, and it looked at all the possible fuels that could take the place of petroleum. That was the big goal. Since petroleum was a threat militarily to our country, it was environmental, greenhouse gases. Um, mm-hmm. Petroleum wasn't much used for generating power. Um, And so we looked at all the possible fuels. And at that time in 1979, we concluded that the best possible fuel looked to us like natural gas. Um, It was much cleaner than petroleum. It was very close to being pure hydrogen. It was just CH4. It was one, just one carbon atom and the rest hydrogen. Um, It was very clean burning. And so to us, this looked like an extraordinary opportunity, except that all the fuel systems that were made were geared for a pipeline and Mm -hmm. to be a liquid. So the idea of a gas fuel was quite new and quite exciting. And we then put in about 10 years studying the obstacles to using natural gas, uh, whether there were engines and vehicles that could run on natural gas. Um, And so we looked also at hydrogen at that time because our interest wasn't just in natural gas. It was in any other fuels, too, that should be on the horizon. So by the time I came to start Energy Vision in 2007, um, we had written about nine or ten reports on natural gas, its possibilities, on hydrogen. and. When Energy Vision was launched, the idea was to keep looking at the potential for natural gas, but also because it was not ultimately a fully sustainable fuel, we had to keep looking at other options. And on a trip that I took to Europe, right about then, I went to Oslo, and all of their buses were run on the gases from their sewage treatment plant. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated with that. That was renewable natural gas. It was renewable natural gas extracted from waste. And suddenly it began to take shape as the truly sustainable fuel. And we focused more and more on it. It didn't really exist in this country yet. And so for the last 10 years, we have been looking at this very exciting fuel, which had almost no recognition um, and which over a decade has come to be more and more the focus of public and policy interest. Right. That's that's uh, fascinating. And, and it, um, I was struck as you were talking about that history, how it's cyclical, it seems, right? Because we're still talking today about how this industry is driven. And yes, there is some certainly uh, a great deal of policy 
that is driving uh, decisions in in the space, but um, still a lot of corporate involvement, right? And and companies making those sustainable choices. And I think we're going to get get into that in the future, but uh, a little bit later. But um, that was I was just struck by that, Matt. Let me pull you in here a little bit. Uh, I was I was um, I, I enjoyed listening to to Joanna talk about uh, how she, how she evolved, the group evolved, and how she how she grew um, it from some previous work that she worked at and, and, and that her background was in reporting and research, uh, that seems to still be, you know, the primary mission of Energy Vision today. How did a, a young buck like you out of college get drawn into Energy Vision and this work and the, and the, uh, the research work that you all do? Sure. Well, it's a great question. And I, I can't say that I imagine myself being so heavily focused on this idea of transforming waste into right. uh, valuable end products. But at the same time, my, my background sort of led me down this path. I studied geology uh, undergrad and always wanted to get into sort of the renewables world. Wasn't quite sure how. Um, ended up going back and, and doing an MBA. And while doing that, was involved in a sort of a green chemistry type startup in the Midwest that was looking at the agricultural sector and looking at all these various waste streams, particularly from cheese manufacturing in the form of whey, and then from, you know, biodiesel, um, and looking at ways to turn those from liabilities into resources. And so it, it really framed or reframed my thinking about all these material flows out there that ultimately have either energy value or chemical value inherent to them that historically were just being thrown away and typically at a cost to the company. And so it was a trip I took in business school to China where we were actually speaking with, uh, I think it was Zebec who had an operation in China in Shanghai and the, the presentation just stuck with me, this idea that all of the world's organic waste could be converted into an energy source and a nutrient source. And so upon graduating and, and finding myself in New York, um, happened upon Joanna and we immediately sort of hit it off and, and recognized some, some uh, similarities in our, in our paths, despite a, a slight... Uh, generational gap and um, actually started, you know, as a research intern looking at the projects at that point. So in 2012, that were taking organics and creating vehicle fuel, and they were mostly sort of on-site projects, many of them at landfills where, you know, refuse trucks were using the gas produced at the landfill to actually power themselves. And there were seven or eight projects at that time that were doing some form of, of renewable natural gas uh, vehicle fuel. And so we've certainly seen a huge growth in, in this sector since then. And, and we'd like to, to believe that it's in large part due to our continued you know, research and, and outreach on the topic. Yeah, I, I'm struck, you know, National Geographic has, has really highlighted 
uh, the problem of waste, I think these past several years, especially plastics, right? And in, 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 um, we, when people think about the waste management problem, they usually think about the the physical waste, right? What you see, what we see, the solid waste. And um, I think it's, I think this is a fascinating aspect that that most people probably don't consider. I read that solid waste um, for municipalities here in the U.S. is expected to grow nearly 70% between now and 2050. Uh, and that unmanaged biogas, right, all that organic matter, um, whether it's solid waste or wastewater, it's responsible for 28% of all fugitive methane emissions in the U.S., just from the U.S. alone. I mean, that's almost as much as what um, what tallies from the oil and gas production industry on its own. So, you know, we can make one side of this the boogeyman, but the reality is we've got another component. If we want to worry about greenhouse gases and methane, we want to address it. We really have to address this, this organic uh, matter. Correct, Joanna? Yes, we have to. In fact, we did, we did a look, Matt did it. Um, when the Porter Ranch accident happened in the West Coast and there was uh-huh. natural gas pouring out of an underground storage tank and people were getting sick and it was a real mess. And we looked at the amount of greenhouse gases, of natural gas, that was emitted by that accident, which had so much public attention. And I think it was 90,000 tons a year, Matt. Was that about it? Um, and then we compared that to the amount of natural gas emitted by the fossil gas industry through its pipelines and everything else. What escaped? Mm-hmm. And that was um, about 400,000 a year. And then we looked at how much organic material, how much biogas is escaping for, uh, from our organic wastes across the country. And it turned out that that was about 12 times as much, or 25 wow. times as much as what was coming out of the fossil gas industry. So if, in fact, we want to address the climate threat in this country, we had to find a way to capture the gases that were escaping as organic material rotted across the country, we had to find a way of capturing those gases and then doing something with them. And we found what you could do with them was a lot. You could turn them into a clean fuel and that would turn what was um, an escaping potent greenhouse gas, which is methane, Mm -hmm. into a fuel that could actually be used just like fossil gas, it's the same chemically, um, and could take the place of diesel fuel in buses and trucks. So it had two real benefits. One, you were capturing the gas so it didn't escape. And two, you were then turning it into a fuel to displace diesel. So this looked enormously valuable. A win-win. I know, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, we've all been taught the lesson reduce, reuse, recycle. I know staff and I like to also add on to that reclaim and refuel. So we have that circular economy, right? We're not a linear economy where we just throw something out. We, we we're trying to look at every single waste point in the stream and find a way to capture that 
and use it for good and displace, right, obviously the bad. I think that's important. The different um, different carbon intensities, uh, correct, Matt, from the different waste streams here or food stocks, feedstocks, I should say? Yeah, so if you look at either Argon or in the case of California, the Air Resources Board, you know, they've, I think, set the gold standard in terms of how to perform full life cycle assessments. So, you know, all energy inputs and outputs and, and what the, um, you know, the carbon and climate impacts are. And for for renewable natural gas, you know, n- not all sources are created equal. If you look at a landfill, for example, uh, where the baseline is that there is regulation and landfill operators are generally required to, at a minimum, capture the gas and flare it. Um, you know, the, the carbon intensity of those projects is somewhere in the 40 to 50 range. So positive, still a a significant, you know, reduction compared to diesel or even fossil gas. But if you're looking at food waste or, or if you're looking at agricultural materials, so dairy Mm -hmm. or swine manure, you're actually looking at what, what is called a net carbon negative fuel and that's mm-hmm. because the the baseline is often that these materials um you know sit in a large lagoon and especially in the summer months they're effectively venting methane directly into the atmosphere and so the ability to go from that baseline of unmitigated unregulated to capturing that methane and using it to displace either diesel or fossil gas, you're talking about more emissions being captured in the process than are actually emitted uh, through that same process. So we've Mm -hmm. seen projects, you know, largely dairy RNG projects that are in the negative 250 to negative 300 range. You're talking about, you know, a a 300% reduction compared to the standard use of diesel. And and that's the lowest carbon intensity fuel that's out there today. So it's, it's a major climate benefit to be able to start capturing this methane that was otherwise going straight into the atmosphere. I would like to possibly add that the climate agreements in Paris, they have conceded that they urgently need, if we're going to meet the goals of the climate agreement, that we need what are called net carbon negative strategies. They don't just release release the amount that's being generated, but they actually find a way to somehow take the gases out of the air. And so here, when you have a fuel that where you have more greenhouse gases captured in producing the fuel than are ever emitted by the buses or trucks burning it, you Mm -hmm. are actually taking these gases out of the air. It's net carbon negative. And it's almost the only strategy as of now that we have that accomplishes that goal. Mm -hmm. We hear hear a growing drumbeat about this need to immediately tackle climate change. And this certainly addresses that, right, more aggressively than we've done before. Um, But I'm also struck about this, this long-standing need 
to to address clean air and smog and pollutants, right? And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly highlighted the importance of clean air and um, and urban air quality. And you're based in New York City, so you, you folks know better than better than most. Um, but do you think environmentalists, they seem not to care as much anymore about NOx and SOx and particulate matter. All we hear about are greenhouse gases. And and um, and I think the beauty of RNG fueling a natural gas vehicle is that you can address both. You can address it media, immediately. RNG is a drop-in fuel. We have the technology. We have the service uh, providers, fueling stations. We have a mature network across the, the country. Um but I'm still struck by the fact that we seem to have some roadblocks in that. And you have a, you know, you have a, a long background in clean air, clean water advocacy. What do you think we need to do to, to get folks to recognize that? Is that it's an it's an ever uphill battle, isn't it? Well, I think that over the years, priorities change and interests change. You know, when we first mm-hmm. passed the Clean Air and Clean Water Act, the interest was in um, smoke that went into the air. And what went into uh, into landfills? That was mm-hmm. that rubble on the road and smoke. And we thought, actually, at that time, 1970, that we would have air that was fit for every New Yorker, every American, every person to breathe within about 10 years. And water pollution control the same way. Um, we had no idea how complicated it would be. But over time, we then recognized the importance of toxic chemicals, which hadn't been appreciated at first. We looked more and more at the effects of these things on workers um, and on children. We began to be more and more concerned about air and water pollution in the 80s and early 90s. And then all of a sudden, this lurking dialogue on climate change, which started in the early 80s, um, Mm -hmm. that started to take on more importance as we saw wildfires and storms and and the impacts of climate change. So I think that these things perk along and they pick up speed when something happens that makes you notice. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're all enormously important. The interesting thing, I think, has been that with the coronavirus in urban areas and particularly communities of color, um, you have so many people that are exposed to so much diesel exhaust, mm-hmm. as in the South Bronx in New York City, that you have children that are having twice the rate of asthma as the national average. You have families suffering from uh, all kinds of heart and lung diseases. And when the coronavirus came along, it suddenly started um, affecting people in these communities. Right. Infinitely greater rate of illness and death. So what air pollution really does to communities and to our lungs and to our hearts um, is vital to address. And I think now both of these things are really getting a lot of attention. As they should. really on the ground, you know, it's where you breathe and see. Climate change is somewhere up there, but they're both, I think, the measure that people are using now. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, you know, I'm going to ask you both to sit tight and we're going to come back in episode five, hopefully, and continue this conversation. We're not ready to, to, to say goodbye to Joanna and Matt, but we are ready to wrap up this episode 
I want to thank to you and uh, thank both of you and to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, be sure to check in on us on episode five, where we continue our conversation with Energy Visions, Joanna Underwood and Matt Tomek. For more information on NGV America's work, visit NGV America's website at ngvamerica.org. There you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can always find out more about Energy Vision and its work and research at energy-vision.org. Uh, be sure to share comments with us on today's podcast via email at info at ngvamerica.org. And if I didn't throw enough at you, uh, also you can follow us on our favorite social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On behalf of Energy Vision's Joanna Underwood and Matt Tomek and the entire NGV America team, I'm Dan Gage. Thanks again for joining us. You just experienced the fast fill. Until next time. <laughs>